Today's episode is brought to you by Prince Shakur's When They Tell You To Be Good, a debut memoir that brilliantly mines Shakur's radicalization and self-realization through examinations of place, childhood, queer identity, and a history of uprisings. Khadija Ali Coleman calls the memoir searing and poignant, and Morgan Jerkins says it combines so much sociocultural criticism, religion, and politics while centering on the microcosm of one Jamaican family and the aftermath of two male relatives' untimely deaths. It commands attention and doesn't release you well after the last sentence. When They Tell You To Be Good is out on October 4th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I've been thinking about and preparing for this conversation with Dion Brand for the good part of a year. You may have noticed me bringing her work into my conversations with Solmaz Sharif and Gabrielle Seville and Claire Schwartz and Elaine Castillo over that time. As the preparation for today, slowly over that year, created dialogue between Dion's work and these other writers. And their own responses and engagement with her work in turn informed today's conversation as well. After my third conversation with Ursula K. Le Guin, having completed one with her in each genre, I said to her a comment that led her to propose we make a book together. And the comment was, I can't think of another writer I could have done this with. A writer who over the course of nearly a half century has written extensively and enduringly in all three genres, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Well, Dion Brand is another of those extremely rare writers who has done just that. And while we will center her poetry today in honor of the arrival of her landmark book, Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems, our conversation about her poetry is also in conversation with her iconic works of prose. Prose, that is, a poet's prose. And we look at the employment of language by her and by others, and we look at time, narrative time, and revolutionary time. We look at these elements of her poetics as they intersect with race and with gender in order to see how Brand's project of writing toward and from a time and space of black liberation has changed shape and mood, tactic and form over the decades. For the bonus audio archive, Dion picked excerpts from two books that are two of the books I'm most excited about coming out in 2023. Dion reads a passage from the poet Kinesia Lubrin's fiction debut, Code Noir, and reads another set of passages from Christina Sharp's upcoming book, Ordinary Notes, passages about the politics of memorialization that for me connect to other past conversations on Between the Covers too, with Daniel Mendelssohn and Brandon Shimoda in particular. Brand's two contributions to the bonus audio join a deep and growing archive. 
everything from Nikki Finney talking about and reading from Lorraine Hansberry's diaries to Marlon James's hour-long craft talk on the art of narrative seduction, from Miriam Chancy's talking about and teaching from an excerpt of Jamaica Kincaid, to our new U.S. Poet Laureate, Ada Limon, reading the poems of Alejandra Pizarnik. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community and becoming a listener supporter. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with every episode, full of things referenced during the conversation, but also of things I discovered and used to inform the conversation itself. And every supporter can join our collective brainstorm of who to invite next on the show in the future. On top of all that, there are many past guests who have donated everything from rare collectibles to writing consultations. So if you enjoy today's conversation, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to check out all the possible rewards and gifts you could choose by becoming a listener supporter beyond the satisfaction that you're helping ensure the continuation of conversations just like this one in the future. I've been imagining this conversation for so long now, and I'm excited that we are finally at the moment of setting it free into the world, of sharing it, of sharing the imaginative, political, and poetic power of Dion Brand's work. Enjoy today's conversation with Dion Brand. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, novelist, essayist, editor, filmmaker, and teacher Dion Brand. Moving from Trinidad to Toronto in the 70s, Brand pursued degrees in English and philosophy from the University of Toronto and philosophy of education from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She has taught literature and creative writing in Ontario and British Columbia, has been distinguished visiting professor at St. Lawrence University in New York, held the Ruth Wynn Woodward Chair in Women's Studies at Simon Fraser University, and has also held the University Research Chair in English and Creative Writing at the University of Guelph. Brand is a founding member of Our Lives, Canada's first newspaper devoted to black women, has served on the board of the Shirley Samaru House, a Toronto shelter for immigrant women, has worked as a counselor for the Toronto Immigrant Women's Center, 
is a past chair of the Women's Issue Committee of the Ontario Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. She's also directed, written for, and or narrated many documentaries, including Sisters in the Struggle, Listening for Something, Adrian Rich and Dion Brand in Conversation, and Under One Sky, Arab Women in North America Talk About the Hijab. Brand has edited or co-edited Rivers Have Sources, Trees Have Roots, and No Burden to Carry, the latter of which investigates the role of Black women in Canadian history. She was appointed poetry editor of McClelland and Stewart, an imprint of Penguin Random House Canada in 2017, and served until 2021. She's co-editor of the Toronto-based literary journal Brick, and will be editorial director of the new imprint at Knopf Canada called Alchemy, one that aims to decenter colonial modes of literature. Even with all of this, Dion Brand is best known for her writing in both prose and poetry, and is one of Canada's most renowned writers, a writer whom Adrienne Rich described as a cultural critic of uncompromising courage, an artist in language and ideas, and an intellectual conscience for her country, and whom Kamau Brathwaite called our first major exile female poet, a writer with six honorary doctorates who was invested as a member of the Order of Canada in 2017. Her nonfiction includes Bread Out of Stone, Recollections, Sex, Recognitions, Race, Dreaming Politics, and the iconic book a map to the door of no return, notes to belonging, whose 20th anniversary celebration, Map to the Door at 20, recently occurred, an incredible oceanic tribute to this book by innumerable writers and artists and scholars, including Ronaldo Walcott, Christina Sharp, Kinesia Lubrin, Alexis, Pauline Gums, Brandon Shimoda, Natalie Diaz, Saidia Hartman, and many others. Her many novels include At the Full and Change of the Moon, the Toronto Book Award winning What We All Long For, and most recently Theory, winner of the 2019 Toronto Book Award, the 2019 OCM Focus Fiction Prize for Caribbean Literature, and the 2021 Wyndham Campbell Prize in Fiction. Dion Brand is here today, however, to talk about what she is best known and most honored for, her poetry. As Toronto's Poet Laureate from 2009 to 2012, she has won the Governor's General's Award for Poetry and the Trillium Book Award for her 1997 collection, Land to Light On, the Pat Lowther Memorial Award for her 2003 collection, Thirsty, the Griffin Poetry Prize for her 2011 collection, Ossuaries, and her 2018 collection, one that feels already like a classic, The Blue Clerk, Ars Poetica in 59 Verses, of which Stephen W. Beatty for Quill and Choir says, The Blue Clerk is nothing less than reckoning with the entirety of Brand's poetic outlook and philosophy. The occasion of today's much-anticipated conversation is the release this year by Penguin Random House Canada earlier this summer and by Duke University Press in the United States on October 18th of Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems, collecting eight volumes of Brand's poetry from 1982 to 2010, contextualized volume by volume through an incredible and in-depth introduction by Christina Sharp, and opening with a new book-length poem by Brand, Nomenclature for the Time Being. John Keane says of Nomenclature, 
Dion Brand is without question one of the major living poets in the English language. While her individual collections speak for themselves in terms of their excellence and aesthetic and cultural significance, nomenclature offers readers the fullest gathering of them and provides a survey of her development and trajectory as a poet. Featuring Christina Sharp's superb critical introduction, this authoritative volume is an invaluable and important text for her fans, poetry readers, literary scholars, and those working in Canadian, Caribbean, Black, American, women's and gender and cultural studies. Any reader will benefit from having a copy in their hands. And Audrey Lord, who in the final months before her death, in a letter to her close friend Adrian Rich, responding to Rich's latest poems that she had sent to Lord, she said in that response, Those poems are so beautiful and resonant and shining for me. I carry them and pieces of Essex, Hemphill, and Dion Brand around inside me wherever I go. Welcome to Between the Covers, Dion Brand. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that extensive (laughs) (laughs) things I had forgotten. (laughs) Well, it's a topic for another time, but there's this strange divide, I think, around what... um, what writers people really know well in Canada versus the United States that I just wanted to make sure that um, you were properly introduced here, even though so many people love you in the, in the United States. Thank you. Um, but I do want to start our conversation in, in perhaps a, a counterintuitive way. Much like this book contains images by the artist Torquasi Dyson, you gave a reading standing before some of her artwork in Chicago a couple of years ago called The Shape of Language where among many other things, you contrasted poetry to narrative. And I think in a way you were arguing for why you are a poet first and foremost. Um, Torquasi Dyson says, or said then, I I begin to understand that surviving through abstraction is my formal project today. And it seemed like perhaps surviving through poetry might be yours when you said, poetry is always abstract even when it is narrative poetry. Poetry or that part of poetry's power is that the reader's response is tangential to poetry, whereas it is crucial to narrative, that poetry is pressure, pressure on verbal matter, pressure on air, sustained pressure on space, that while the reader interrogates narrative, poetry interrogates the reader. Um, You then went on to say that narrative is a system of representation, one that is almost always implicated in the racist colonial project, that all narratives are bracketed by racism and that narrative for black people is incapable of transmitting or sounding a tomorrow beyond brutalism. Whereas in your poetry, you say, quote, I try to produce a grammar in which black existence might be the thought and not the unthought. And yet, nevertheless, you continue across the decades to create works of narrative, both in fiction and nonfiction. And I think also your poetry is not infrequently narrative with characters that might endure throughout a given book-length work. So even though we're going to spend most of our time talking about poetry, I thought maybe we could begin briefly just speaking to what continues to compel you despite or perhaps because of your reservations, um, to write narrative? (laughs) 
I suppose I want to always think through that conflictive space, be in that space where uh, meaning is made, right? And for me, narrative, qua narrative, regiments that space in ways that poetry doesn't. Poetry allows that space to be much more fluid. That is much more what space is, mm. right? That space is liminal, that space is fluid, that space uh, does change, you know, meter by meter, centimeter by centimeter. Um, so that, but also that uh, what is language if it doesn't move, if it doesn't open uh, if it doesn't complicate rather than regiment or complicate rather than rule make all the time. And I saw a kind of relation between the opening up of the space of meaning, the space of language making, the space of meaning in a life where that space is completely regimented at all times, right? So I think of capital, for example, and the way capital controls time, right? It suggests something called work. It puts that work within uh, a certain square meter <laughs> of the day. Uh, so it occupies days, it occupies uh, lives, and it constantly attempts to regiment every square meter of air, <laughs> land, or life, right? That is its, its object in a way. It's, a, it's, it's logic. And it, it by now isn't even a, a logic where, that we, that we can, um, where we can talk, it, talk about it in terms of, of a morality. It is simply a kind of machinery that controls time in that way, right? It controls life and controls time. And so I attempt, we all do each day, we, we are braced against this control of time and control of language. Therefore, we are always braced against uh, the regime of capital. It also has control of language itself, right? It um, compresses language in in its meaning, in its logic of what we are good for, what we are worth, uh, what might happen, etc. Right? As much as it compresses space into these days, um, uh, really, you know, condo projects and malls and streets that only go to places where we might be quote useful. Right? Yeah. Um, it objects to trees, <laughs> except, <laughs> except as decorative, and yeah. then move them out again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it objects to trees, except as lumber, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to build more of those, you know, constructions, and to, and to. Uh, so it is in a constant process of organizing us into its shape, but I recognize and most of us do something outside of that shape the thing that is being organized into the shape yeah and so i think that is the space of poetry 
Well, that is the space where the kind of disorderliness, the ill orderliness <laughs> against uh, uh, capital finds, finds us. I feel that, I guess, poet's impulse when you're writing prose, working against the regimentation when you're actually writing narrative. I think a, a map to the door often reads like poetry, and, and perhaps the mirror image, the blue clerk, that poetry often reads like lyric essay, and your latest novel, Theory, doesn't really exist in the realm of plot or the world, quote-unquote, out there. There's no world-building, per se, in theory. Instead, it sort of lives in, in a consciousness. But on the flip side, whether intentionally or accidentally, looking at your poetry across time, as Christina Sharp so incredibly does for us in, in the introduction, a story does emerge of your life and of your poetics, but also of the world out there, of political movements, of anti-colonial struggles. And I want to start by looking back 40 years now to you as an artist and, and how it intersected with these movements 40 years ago. But before we do, I'm curious what your experience is like of stepping back and looking at your work this way, where you aren't just releasing a new poem, but you're releasing it alongside 40 years of poems both what the emotional and intellectual experience of looking back has been like, but also what it has revealed to you in, in doing so, especially given how you've described yourself as always focused on the next thing once something is finished. So this is a interesting moment um, for it better. Was. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Um, I, I at first was reluctant to, to collect the sets of, poetries in that way and for a very long time didn't even read through them again mm. um, but when I did I thought they contained all of my ambitions both my sort of ethical ambitions I suppose and also my ambitions around language and what language might do and they contained the me, the poet 40 years ago, the me who was the poet 40 years ago, as well as her um, her movement through time and also through, um, through her practice and through her desires, yeah? And I, I speak of her in the third person because I, because I am the third person as well in some ways. And, and I don't consider the, the I in the poetry in any way the same perhaps as the as this me who is living the life, right? So the I in the poetry is always that contemplative um, being, if you will, that thinks over time, over event, over politics, um, and over the changes in language. So then I I I, I think throughout those texts, I am doing a set of work on, a set of work on language. So the, the texts change from the, the text of primitive offensive, which is um, moss, it is thin and coming down the page, you know, and it is um, recounting and recalling a kind of unknown past and is 
always kind of subtended by colonialism and, and that uh, a kind of colonial past that imprisons it. Um, so it is slim and walking down the page. And then the next text, which followed quite quickly, uh, Winter Epigrams and Epigrams for Ernesto Cardinal in defense of Claudia. And because primitive offensive had to be, was so intense and so, um, so pained and so intense and so, so much about the recognition of a, uh, of enslavement and, um, and the condition of black people in the diaspora after uh, that the epigrams had to be short and quick and tight and relieved by humor <laughs> in, in some way to relieve that moment, to open that moment. But they also were formal, much more formal than, than primitive offensive before. So if I pass through all of them, I can see my, uh, what is it? My, my movement through form and um, subject and trying to figure out what these forms that I was creating or attending to would do with subject, how they attended the subject. And then, you know, I, I can see myself becoming, um, I don't know, careful, careless <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> don't give a damage, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I, uh, and, and in each text, I tried to work on something else so that in No Language is Neutral, I tried to work on the demotic, what it was to write in the demotic, um, which by then for me was a kind of demotic now about 20 years removed from a demotic in Trinidad where I was born. Um, and I had to account for that movement also. Mm or I have to account for its illegitimacy <laughs> in some ways through it, but I have to account for how it registers in the brain and how one moves in and out of, of any demotic actually, and, and, and try to flow with that. So every text is a different thing uh, in a way. Well, you've, you've both written and spoken about looking back in various ways. Uh, for instance, when talking about John Coltrane's Venus, you talk about how at some point in that eight-minute song, which you describe as speaking out and beyond time, blowing into the future, a song that sounds like we in the future, a song that evokes what you call the job of Black artists to play where we ought to be living. You say that at some point in that eight minutes that the song, deep into it, it rejects its former self while also somehow accepting that the rejected self, like a shadow, is embedded in the song and in him. And near the beginning of Ossuaries, you write, I lived and loved, some might say in momentous times. Looking back, my dreams were full of prisons. I, I feel like this already suggests an answer to a uh, question Billy Ray Belcourt has for you, but I'm going to play it and uh, with my mm. preface to it and um, hear what you have to say. Hi, Dion. Congratulations on the momentous publication of Nomenclature. My question is, what, if any, is the relationship between nostalgia and poetry? 
<laughs> None. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to guess. <laughs> I, I think I wrote, a, uh, there are lines to a poem once that I wrote called, Our Nostalgia Was a Lie, and the passage on that six-hour flight is wide and like another world and then another one inside. Um I, I have no use for nostalgia. <laughs> you know, I um some some friends of mine a long time ago had a party. And the theme of this party was supposed to be something like we all dress in 19th century garments. And I thought, what would that be for me exactly? <laughs> Do you know yeah. What I mean? yeah, what would that be for me exactly, right? right? Um so I have I have, and I think I've written it somewhere else. I have absolutely no nostalgia for any time past. Um, no time past is good enough for my living. You know, um, I can only think of the future, the place where, you know, we might live, which would refute all that we are living, uh, negate and 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 tear up all that we are living so i am always living in the future <laughs> i might of course because i am this kind of finite human being i might uh use the resources of a past to do something with because that is all i have that's all the material i have to do things with right what happened or what could have happened what shouldn't have happened etc you know a day that looked like um a, a day that had sun in it a day that had uh trees that were uh whose leaves were dying in it i i have to use those materials you know the physical materials of the world as well as the physical materials that have um uh passed through time in some ways but i have no longing for it um there isn't a time where uh it was good to be it is always now and it is always in the future you know, uh, given the particular set of historical circumstances that created my existence here, then my work is to live in the future. That's what was so interesting about this looking back. And I wanted to ask you a question because reading this body of work made me look back um, also because the first several books in in your poetry life in them there's a great sense of possibility political possibility maybe hope even with regards to anti-colonial movements and when i when i think back to the beginning of my own activism in the 80s um it was different than yours in the sense that i think yours was deeply rooted in political analysis where when i was young i think it was purely affective for me motivated by emotion and it uh, I didn't really gain any great sense of analysis for many decades after that. But mm -hmm. but reading your poems from that period, I think back to my own life. And I think back to the anti-nuclear movement at the time, the anti-apartheid movement, to CISPIS on our campus, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, which was being monitored by the CIA and the campus office was bugged. And I, I lived for a year in, in Central America in, in the 80s as a teenager and, and being really impacted by the 10th anniversary of the Sandinista, some of the uh, celebrations. I bring this up because for me, this early activism felt full of possibility mm. in a way your early books remind me of, 
Yet I also have trouble separating that period in activist history from my age. Did it feel like a different future was possible because of the moment at hand, historically speaking, out in the world? Or did it feel that way because I was young and these were my first experiences and I hadn't yet accumulated a mounting set of failures and setbacks and foreclosure so I guess I wonder, it made me wonder about yeah. you. What is your sense of that time when you, when you look back, how much would you connect this sense of possibility in these early books to your time of life versus the time of life of the world? Ah, I see. I hear, I hear you. Um, I think both those things are true in some senses, but I think concretely I did live through uh, some very, important, crucial um, political movements, uh, uh, some periods of, you know, sparkling, uh, as there are now too, yeah, political ideas. Um, and in terms of the development of the world, uh, those were possible, right? Those were possible and people worked toward them, the anti-colonial movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the feminist movement, um, the gay liberation struggles movement, those were, uh, those happened, <laughs> let us say. They didn't just happen because I was younger. <laughs> they, they actually <laughs> happened. Yes. Um, there were in, incredible activism toward it, and they confronted the power structures of the day and discombobulated them in, in, in serious ways, right? Of course, what became of some of the demands of those movements were kind of co-opted into a system and given back to us in, in ways that that system could absorb, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we had sort of, um, how should I say it? We had uh, half of what we wanted <laughs> or a quarter of what we wanted uh, was thrown back at us, uh, yeah? But those movements did exist and had a potency at the moment that that we were living them. I remember being, you know, here in Toronto, out on the streets demonstrating against um, apartheid in, in South Africa and having, you know, great connections with other activists around the world um, in that, in the, in that um, struggle. And something happened out of those movements. Yeah, right. something happened, something was enabled out of those movements. Um, or, for example, you know, the um, struggle for choice, uh, you know, for women's right to um, be human <laughs> and control their own, have, have, you know, sovereignty over their own bodies. And I remember being out on the street here in Toronto, too, in those struggles. And those struggles uh, succeeded, however, partially all, all over the world, right? The movements, the ideas that I then transformed into poetry, if you will. Um, I felt and lived through them at the time. And they were, they were so sharp that the, the power structures in the world had to take notice of them and did and moved, but either moved to co-opt or to curtail or to somehow incorporate as a sign of their having taken notice of them 
and knowing that it would be dangerous not to address them, but only addressing them insofar as the system could continue to do that work. And so um, the radical edges of those movements were somehow blunted, right? Yeah. And even more so, we could see in certain kinds of situations, not just blunted, but people were imprisoned and killed for those things, right? People were imprisoned and killed for those things. Um, someone said a long time ago, and I can't remember, that if one were to think of, let's say, the uh, radical black movement in the United States and what happened in the you know, late 60s, 70s, in terms of its confrontation with the police and the CIA, et cetera, that if you were to think about the elimination of all those people, it would be similar to the elimination of an entire government, mm. right? If you think of what happened to black radicals in the US in that, in that moment. So when we arrive at the moment after, it isn't in a sense, and I write this somewhere in a text, I think in Land to Light On, um, in a war, one gets defeated. <laughs> You know what I mean? One gets defeated. It's not, it's not that one's ideas are defeated, but the incredible amount of energy of the state against those ideas and against the people who generate those ideas, that is also, that is also happening. It's not merely that we didn't try enough or uh, work enough or think enough or any of those things. You, yeah. you get beat up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then you have to kind of, you know, go underground again mm -hmm. and come back again, right? With that knowledge. I'm talking too much, David. No, not at all. Your, your poetry, I, I love how your poetry itself goes underground and comes out again. And, and I want to I wanna spend, before we go there, I want to spend um, just another moment with this early period. You, you moved to Canada in 1970. And have lived there largely since. But for one year in 1983, you moved to Grenada to support the People's Revolutionary Government. And you end up being there when the United States invades and topples that government. And on paper, you'd think Grenada was an unlikely target. Its main product mm. was not oil or precious metals, but nutmeg. Um, from what I've read, its naval fleet consisted of 10 fishing trawlers at the time. There wasn't a single stoplight in the entire country. And its population was less than the uh, than Peoria, Illinois. Um, but the Zinn Education Project uses a phrase from Noam Chomsky's when they say, Grenada was the threat of a good example, that mm -hmm. it needed to be removed as an inspiration for another way to be. And I wondered if we could, if you could speak to what drew you there, what you encountered there, that despite the trauma of the five-day invasion, despite the disappointment of returning to Canada, that made you characterize it 11 years later in your essay collection, Bread Out of Stone, as the best year of your life um, at that point in 94. Yeah. Um, I was a socialist. Uh, and I wanted to go and work in a socialist state. And I say was, but I am. 
Um, and I wanted to go and live where my energies and my hopes were in a in a space where that was possible, where it was possible to kind of work each day with your politics, as opposed to against a certain politic. Yeah. Of course, the big world was the was the against, but and and this small place, the the, the place where um, there was an attempt to uh, make a socialist revolution against a, a dreadful dictatorship, you know, um, which the New Jewel movement had brought down that year, and many internationalists went to work in Grenada to. Um, and yes, it was a it was against the 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 possibility of a good example. Uh, and there, I also worked with a lot of other people from up and down the archipelago, who were also involved in trying to create um, uh, socialist uh, spaces, uh, states. And so. As I said, I, I simply wanted to go work where my politics were, where that was the starting point. And it was a wonderful year of living, uh, despite the ending. Um, you know, I sat in rooms where the people from the Ministry of Finance were talking with just regular people about, like, what do we do? Do we do more sugar? Do we do more, you know? It was just, and the relationships and the relations that the New Jewel movement tried to have with just people on the ground, uh, very personal, communal uh, relations, uh, involving people in decisions about the economy. Um, and so that is what drew me there, the possibility of that. And then the, and to see its execution, in a way, right? Um, yeah, it's very, always very difficult for me to, to talk about it. It's so strange, it's so many years later. Um, but, I, but I woke up each morning and went to work with open heart and <laughs> open hands. Yeah. You know. Well, I, I picked out three early poems, three early brief poems I was hoping you'd read. Um, I was thinking Canto 14 from Primitive Offensive, October 19th, 1983 from Chronicles of the Hostile Sun, and then Return from No Language is Neutral. Canto 14. Naked skin woman, run. Legs to silence. Bush to water. To snakes evanescent. Legs to dark water, tree unscaled, run, moss to creeping liana. Nothing grows here, nothing except everything. So green it blacks, so green it thinks of crevices to moist on, to ponder things fecund, full breasts of things. Naked skin woman, run, here I am rough and green as it were, brutal as they come, grubby as usual. Where is my battle shoe, one boot and a bead for my navel, 
it's all I need. Here my shale skin, battle dress, green jacket, protect me. Here again, sister dust, comrade water, here I am, ugly and ready. Hand down my juju, my life stone, sister clay, wet me with some water. Dash my breasts over my shoulders, come sister, hold me back, parry enemy. Naked skin woman dance, run belly, full of wind, I dance, run, my arms then eloquent wisps, worn over this shawl of a face, something of a poised mantis, so poised turned to wood, wooden pall for a cracked face that met itself in the look of one million coral. Naked woman run, good day, sister death. Let us get drunk. Let us eat roses. Let us eat newspapers. What will it matter? Here I am, mercifully bare. Prop up my elbows, my battle points. Throw water on my face. Give me rum. Show me the dog. Let me at him, Hungan. Prepare my beer. Put sticks and spit. My back is like iron. There's blood on my forehead. Put a cloth to my temples. Come, sister, hold my cowrie, parry enemy. Naked woman run. Aloneness comes. In the end, it covers ground quickly. But to be a bright and violent thing, to tear up that miserable sound in my ear, I run. My legs can keep going. My belly is wind. October 19th, 1983 This poem cannot find words. This poem repeats itself. Maurice is dead. Jackie is dead. Uni is dead. Vincent is dead. Dream is dead. Lesser and greater. Dream is dead in these Antilles. Winwood. Leeward. Maurice is dead. Jackie is dead. Uni is dead. Vincent is dead. Dream is dead. I deny this poem. There isn't a hand large enough to gesture this tragedy, let alone these words. Dead insists itself on us. A glue of blood sticks the rest together. Some are dead. The others will not mourn, most wait for the death announcements. Maurice is dead. Jackie is dead. Uni is dead. Vincent is dead. Dream is dead, lesser and greater. Dream is dead in these Antilles. Winwood, Leeward, reality will die. I refuse to watch faces. Back once again. Betrayal again. Ships again. Manacles again. Some of us sold each other. Bracelets, undecorative and unholy. Back to God. I cannot believe the sound of your voice any longer. 
blindfolded and manacled, stripped. Bernard, Phyllis, Ousu, H.A., what now? Back to jails in these Antilles, back to shackles, back to slavery. Dream is dead, lesser and greater, drowned and buried, windward, leeward, a dirge sung forever and in flesh. Three armored personnel carriers. How did they feel? Shot, shut across Lucas Street. This fratricide, this hot day. How did they feel? Murdering the revolution, skulking back along the road. The people watchful, the white flare, the shots, the shot. The people running, jump, flying, the fort, fleeing. What rumor not true? Please, re-arrested, not dead. Maurice is dead. At 9.30 p.m. the radio. Jackie's dead. 9.30 p.m. the radio. Dream. Is dead. In these Antilles. How do you write tears? It is not enough. Too much. Our mouths reduced, informed by grief. Windward, leeward. It is only October 19th, 1983. And Dream is dead in these Antilles. Return. Return one. So the street is still there, still melting with sun, still the shining waves of heat at one o'clock, the eyelashes scorched, staring the distance of the park to the parade stand, still razor grass burnt and cropped, everything made indistinguishable from dirt by age and custom whitewashed, and the people. Still, I suppose, the scorpion orchid by the road, that fine red tongue of flamboyant and orange lips muzzling the air, that green plum turning fat and crimson, still the crazy bougainvillea fancying and nettling itself, purple, pink, red, white, still the trickle of sweat and cold flush of heat raising the smell of cotton and skin, still the dank rank of breadfruit milk, their bash and rain on steps, still the bridge this side, the sea that side, the rotting ship, barnacle eaten, still the butcher's blood, staining the walls of the market, the ascent of hills, stony and breathless, the dry yellow patches of earth still threaten to swamp at the next deluge. So the road, that stretch of sand and pitch struggling up, glimpses sea 
village, earth, barefooted, hot, women, worried, still, the faces, masked in sweat and sweetness, still, the eyes, watery, ancient, still, the hard, distinct, brittle smell of slavery. We've been listening to Dion Brand read from her latest book, Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems. It, it feels like Grenada ripples forward in your work through many books of both prose and poetry. But um, when you read October 19th, 1983, which is the date of the invasion of Grenada by the United States, with your cataloging, your, your, your listing of people you knew who were murdered. Um, I wonder if this was the origin of your interest in inventory, something that is a through line, I think, all the way to the contemporary moment, not just in the book Inventory, which also lists deaths and bombings, whether Iraqi dead or Katrina or all the plants and flowers in Thirsty, which could seem as a counterbalance to the listing of death, but given the ecological death we're all racing towards, seems also to speak to death, um, or at least now it does. Um, or ossuaries, which rejects verbs so that we are with and among things, that um, situates us in an isness of things and material and bones. Or the blue clerk, where the clerk is cataloging everything the the author withholds and doesn't write, and also the way the whole book, the blue clerk, is re-indexed at the end, a wayward index, um, to borrow Sadia Hartman's um, word, but also her sentiment about this index, that relists the book into new relations of form, language, color, plant, and insect life, the human, the nation, the archive. Even your most recent novel, Theory, has an inventory of the lovers who prevent the protagonist from completing their thesis. And your book, Inventory, ends with the line, I have nothing soothing to tell you. That's not my job. My job is to revise and revise this bristling list hourly. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about listing inventory, maybe both its origin and and its enduring, um, it, it as an enduring quality w- within your poetry. I think you're right. Perhaps, perhaps that business of inventory begins there, and and it begins there because after that what was a kind of cataclysmic uh, event, not not simply personally, yes, because certainly for me, um, I could leave, as I say in some of those some of those poems, I at least could leave. Many people couldn't. But it was cataclysmic, I thought, for the region and for a lot of black radical work in the Americas, in a way, it was symbolic of of that. So the fall of the revolution in in Grenada was symbolic for the possibilities of socialist revolution 
in the whole region, in the whole of the Americas, and I mean South, Central, etc. Right? Um, there was the the fall or the disruption of of much kind of socialist work and governance across that whole region. It was, in a sense, the taking back, the 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 reimposition or the verification of U.S. imperialism in North, South, Central America, and the archipelago. And so there was a certain kind of idea that came to a, a halt, right? Uh, the suffering didn't come to a halt. <laughs> the suffering increased. Um, but the great apparatus, the great sort of U.S. imperialist apparatus was put um, into action against this very small place and this very small idea. And what it said to everyone was, not even that, not even as small as that. You won't even get anything as small as that. Yeah. And so I looked at this as a, as a, as a writer and I thought, what is it that I might do here now? I mean, and I think that, you know, I, I've always thought of myself as a writer who, who, who follows, who listens, you know, who accounts, yeah? Um, and I thought, what is my job now? And my job is to take note, right? To take note, to notice, to account, to, to write down <laughs> what is happening, um, to list, yes, uh, to make an inventory of what is gone, uh, what, what exists now. I won't even go so far as to, as to say what is possible, because at that moment it's not what is possible, but just to, uh, just to be the recorder of the time. Yeah, and so that became my my act of uh, survival, <laughs> in a way, yeah. right? My act of survival, and to try to also have the materials of people's desires survive in that, mm. also. So when I come to let's say inventory the book, and uh, inventory is written at the time of the. Um, Gulf Wars, right? And I'm thinking at that moment, you know, when, when let's say Baghdad is being bombed, Baghdad was a, a city of 5 million people. And I live in a city of about, you know, 4 or 5 million people. I'm thinking like, what happens to the daily? Uh, someone must account for this. You know, someone must write this down. Um, and while Baghdad seems you know, on our maps on CNN and ABC and wherever as a, a big spot where some, some terrible ideas being wiped out, we are given to believe there are actually like 5 million individual souls trying to, trying to do a day, mm -hmm. like trying to live a day, trying to experience a day, trying to get through this horrible day. And the kind of um, televisual distance which we are allowed living in North America from these events, um, whether they happen in a city of 5 million or in a small country of 100,000, because it is happening so far away. And I thought, well, okay, my job is to like make a list of what 
those are, what the daily, what the small daily thing is in any given life, right? And that meets up for me with um, what I think uh, I need to write as a Black writer about the small daily life of Black people that is constantly being overpowered by the kind of regime of racism, yeah? So I need to, I need to breathe into that life and take and record every second of it and not only its um, demise, right? Not only the terror that it is subjected to, but its acts of willingness, its acts of openness, its acts of joy, its acts of whatever, <laughs> do you know what I mean? To reclaim that full day. And so my job, it seems to me, is to notice every aspect of that day and to record it. Yeah. Well, I, I I love how in the how the Blue Clark your Ars Poetica, which is about the tension of between what is written or said and what is not written or not said, what is withheld. I love that you've withheld that collection from the collected poems. Yes. Um, in the Blue Clerk, you quote Gilles Deleuze, who says, "Elegy is one of the principal sources of poetry. The great complaint." The complaint is, what's happening to me overwhelms me, not simply that I am in pain, but what has taken away my power of action overwhelms me. And why do I see these things? Why do I know these things? Why must I endure seeing and knowing? And then the author character in this book talks about inventory being a useful technique for a poet when overwhelmed to not just conduct an inventory, but to inventory what overwhelms, which to me is interesting when I think of you saying that the listing isn't about possibility, which I think is true, but paradoxically, I wonder if by listing, by listing what overwhelms, by listing as a technique um, to confront being overwhelmed by, the, by a limited power of action, if somehow that does create possibility i guess the record adds up <laughs> to something yeah and that is the i can't use the word hope um but the intention or that is the that is a possible end of the record that it adds up that it um, accumulates not so much adds up but but accumulates into a life into into an opening of some kind, right? But I, I hesitate to use the word uh, hope because it's such a discredited word. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such a discredited word. It's so used by, you know, um, liberal democracies to characterize uh, the, um, the, 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 the lives and desires of, actually the peoples who it excludes <laughs> from its um from its joys <laughs> mm -hmm. right um so i so i hate that word because we are always expected to have it why why should i have it <laughs> you know um we actually live in hopelessness <laughs> so what 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 is this um 
sorry, I've I've gone somewhere else. Tell me, tell me, bring me back, <laughs> bring me back. Well, I, I was hoping we could leap ahead from your earliest poetry to hear a section of something more recent. You know, what I was hoping we could hear is Ossuary Number Three, a book written in the voice of the fugitive Yasmin. Ossuary Three. I loved and lived, as I said, for a time, looking up from water like seashells. I arrived where the sonorous oceans took me. Washed and washed. Coral overcame my feet, my hands, the shocks of immobility, the stung tendons, the clamped Achilles, the enamel vocal cords. I did well, they say, given the circumstances. The spiked municipalities rationed their handouts of free breads, free bicycles, free bracelets, free sugars, free plastics, free razor blades, free bullets, free coverings, free enclosures, free fences, free, free, absolutely free freeness. Still, they required performances. One needed licenses and stamped forms and masks and stickers and, worse of all, transparent veins. To be frank, Most of my time was spent sleeping in one courthouse or another, defending charges of one thing and another. Larcenies, robberies, trespassing, loitering intimidation, resisting arrest, vagrancy. But fundamentally, existence. I took my case everywhere, naturally, all continents, several unknown galaxies, some as yet Unarmed moons, needless to say, nameless to count, the prodigious silence, the thunderclaps of salutary ignorance. So, as I said, momentous, ravenous, ugly times. I am aware how this looks, like pins and fractile glass, and after a time anyone could see the futile jurisdictions and all my waterlogged paper. Lived and loved common oxymoron. If I have lived, I have not loved. And if I have loved, I cannot have lived. It was difficult to live and love at the same time, you see what I mean? Since to live is to be rapacious as claws, to have the most efficient knives and broken beer bottles, needles, powers of attorney, nonchalance, indifference, negligence, to love is an impediment to this hard business of living, so I cannot have loved, not me. Do not think this of me. Do not think I did not try to breach the fluorescent streets, to admit the long disillusioned sandbanks. Do not think it. I rented secretive rooms to see what it was like. No denying, I spread prickling sheets on narrowing beds, stretched out beside one person and then another. The night dew we collected at our throats cackling, the cardamom aroma of our breaths, the cinnamon we rubbed in our hands before touching, the basil leaves with which we covered ourselves, obviously, my rainy, rainy eyes, my earth-filled hair, all this I brought across sticky bitumen highways to the dim-lit, ambiguous approaches of these stanzas, their permanences, their impermanences, we wore in our heavy, heavy coats, the dried lavender flowers I crushed in my palms before opening the doors, my coastal limbs carrying shells and seaweeds, 
the full ocean in my mouth, oh, I longed, longed for the deepest suicidal blue waters. I craved the seas where what was on earth could not scar me. I gave all this to lovers. I gave them to my glasses. We looked through windows from hotels, off freeways, off the industrial parks, off garbage dumps. We saw demolitions that stung our eyes roomy. Indefinable liquids passed through our indefinable souls. Here I am then, goodbye, again and again. How we left these rooms fully clothed twigs and branded bones again. Do not say, do not say it was my fault. Do not say I could have gathered blue dragonflies or the showering sunlight. The ashes of volcanoes or the residue of songs from the cups of saxophones. I could not, I could not. I could not have raised ferned cadavers, thistles, tabebue rosea, and thurium horses. Could not tribes of tigers and ginger lily cartridges. I tried, love. I did. The scapulae I kissed, I did. The flat triangular bones I filled with kisses. Spumes of kisses, gutters of kisses, postponed kisses, and early newborn kisses. The curve of clavicles, I dug artesian wells of kisses there, utensils of kisses, spoons of kisses, basins of kisses, creeks of kisses. The jugular notch, I ate in kisses, I devoured in kisses, teeth-filled kisses, throat-filled kisses, gullet-stuffed kisses. So don't tell me how love will rescue me. I was carnivorous about love. I ate love to the ankles, my thighs are gnawed with love. Still and yet, I cannot have loved, since living was all I could do, and for that I was caged in bone spur endlessly. Eye sockets ambushed me. I slept with harassment and provocations, though I wanted to grow lilacs. Who wouldn't? To know the secrets of spiders. Who wouldn't? Yet the rumors of newspapers persisted. The pained sighs of the waiting rooms of existence were called good music. I could not leave my house without plans. A perfect stranger's thought and bone would sprout on my heart like a lantern trapping a light. We've been listening to Dion Brand read from her latest collection, Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems. I wondered if inventory is also a way both of self-making, and here I'm thinking of Yasmin and Ossuaries, who creates her own genealogy when you write. This genealogy she's made by hand, this good silk lace, angles plated to bird, Claudia Jones, edge-stitched to monk, Rosa Luxemburg braids Coltrane. And on the other hand, I'm also wondering, when I look at the family tree, and its genealogy at the beginning of your early novel, At the Full and Change of the Moon, which is really like no family tree I've seen because it contains people on the tree labeled the one unrecalled, the ones left in the sea, the one taken by hurricane. I wondered if inventory is also about making absences present um, of speaking into archival silences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. In the case of Yasmin in, in Osiris, 
when one arrives in in this world in her body our body one has to make one's history in a way right one has to make one's intellectual history one has to make one's kind of erotic history one has to make one's way in the world that doesn't record that history as you say right and so yasmin is the new being the new human being the human being produced and recovered from you know uh, 500 years of, of of enslavement and the succeeding neo-colonialism and so how does one make one's self out of those materials? And yes, it must be Engels and Bird <laughs> and Coltrane and um, Duke Ellington and uh, Lord Kitchener and the Mighty Sparrow. And it, it is all the is all the, the the sort of beautiful art created through and after these periods. Um, the the art and music and ideas for survival of that right and so yes so so that that is yasmin her her collection of the collection of the world right um secondly oh just the speaking into um archival silences also the way that you make this yes. family tree that is you could call it a, an inventory of a family as, yes. in a way, but it's a a, a a family that can't be accounted for. Right. A family that can't be accounted for in, in at the full and change of the moon because of the dispersals, because of the dispersals of, of lives through enslavement um, of the period, but also an accounting that has to do with abstraction, because the thing that is written, the, the written record is the record of the conqueror, but there is another record that is the record in the body, the record of the lives lived and the record of the recollections of those lives lived. So that at the front of, at the full and change of the moon, the novel is this family tree, which denies the sort of colonial family tree, right? Which is of a patriarch and their successors, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? As much as the novel itself denies the um, form of literature, the form of narrative, which follows like a single um, being uh, through a certain kind of capitalist development, if you will, like the, the form of the 19th century novel. Um, but there's a life being lived and I am not the writer who is writing the 19th century novel over and over and over again. I am the other writer, <laughs> right? I am the writer of this life, which is evacuated by, by the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century uh, colonial practices, right? I am that recorder. Um, and so the one who uh, loves gold, <laughs> gold things, uh, you know, the one who went away in a boat is a someone, is a being. Mm -hmm. And it's a being lived 
through and with other beings. Um, yeah. So I'm recording. I'm that recorder. Yeah. I, I'm remembering now that you tell us in the Blue Clerk, when, when you're speaking about Borges remembering his father's library, that you had no library, that your grandfather was your library, and that he kept a log of the sun, the tides, the rain, the clouds, which might suggest that your listing practice is ancestral, actually. Um, in, in More that- than likely. <laughs> More than likely, yes. Yeah. That is what he kept a record of, like, yeah. you know, what the sun would be, where it would be, um, uh, what the wind would be that day, uh, how far the sea would come in. Um, yeah, and, and and in a sense, that's that's my way of record keeping, if you will. If if there is such a thing as a record, if if uh, by record keeping, and we 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 want to also like you know trouble that word anyway. But if it is about recounting, and if there are prohibitions against a certain kind of recounting, those are the very things that are to be recounted and have been recounted in uh, my life, certainly. That is the official record. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yeah. in that spirit, um, we have another question for you. Uh, that extends and opens up this notion of genealogies, both familial genealogies and self-made genealogies. Hello, Dion. This is Alexis Pauline Gums. And as I hope you know, your work has impacted me fundamentally, and it has impacted generations of my family. And so I wanted to ask you this question or really just give you the opportunity to talk about the intergenerational scale of your work. How do you think about the intergenerational impact of your work, the intergenerational sources of your work? As you know, I found a letter from Audre Lorde to Adrian Rich where she talked about loving your early poetry and holding it in her heart. And so we know that if you've impacted Audre Lorde, you've impacted me and my whole family and my, you know, toddler nieces at this point, that you are certainly impacting generations of folks around the world. And so I'm interested maybe in how you feel about that, but more in how you would talk about your work, which is intergenerational in itself, I think especially about at the full and change of the moon, for example. Yeah. What would you say about your work and how it lives intergenerationally? Wow, that's a kind of hard question in the sense that it's not the first thing I think about well, let me let me talk about at the full and change in that regard then, right? I wanted to know in at the full and change of the moon what that that statement by that woman who was hung and burnt at the stake, whose name in my novel is Maria Sue, but whose name in real life was Thisbe, and I found her 
in an essay by Navias Naipaul, um, The Loss of El Dorado, a book called The Loss of El Dorado. And she's reported to have said to this court in, I think, 1806, uh, when she was sentenced to be hung and to be burnt at the stake for an uprising on a plantation. And she is reported to have said in his work, this is but a drink of water to what I have already suffered. And I just thought that that was such a magnificent, such a grand statement. And that I had only learned it from a small book of V.S. Naipaul, as opposed to that being the grand statement of the world, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Um, as, a as opposed to proceeding from that statement. And then I thought, well, so many of us proceed from that statement, like our existence on the planet proceeds from that statement, right? The entire um, culture of the last five or 600 years uh, that we know in the world proceeds from, you know, that, you know, uh, the slave trade, enslavement, all of the economies and the logics of that, right? that arrive with us and that statement, this is but a drink of water to what I've already suffered. And so I wanted to write that novel about what the, what we who remain have inherited from that statement, not what we who remain have inherited in terms of sort of sums of money, you know, of the, of the people who perpetrated those states, uh, and those economies, but what it is that we who uh, proceeded from that rebellion, that antagonism to those states, uh, to, to colonial states, to capitalist states, etc., what we proceed with, right? Um, and so then I wanted to do that generationally because, well, only because I arrive at, at this moment <laughs> in the 21st century, I, I exist. Um, and therefore I, I am the, I am the um, echo of that statement, right? And so I wanted to look at each, I wanted to look at the, the dispersal of that statement as well as the dispersal of people in the diaspora. And I'm, I know something of those dispersals, given kind of my own family that exists on every continent, <laughs> right? I, I have people who live in London. I have people who live in Amsterdam. I have, you know, and and that is as a result of that of that history. Yeah, I have people who live in Venezuela. I have people, yeah. and so what is it that we carry, all of us throughout? Uh, and not just in one era, but in several. So I was interested in, in, in that. I can only say I was interested in it and then took that interest into some paragraphs. <laughs> but I didn't think, so I was interested in it, in its impact, in the impact of that uh, across time. So if I'm to speak about generational, I guess I speak about it that way. What happens to a particular set of relationships across time. Um, 
and how do they evolve with and from each other and what is their what is their impact so so i know i'm answering it in this sort of hazy way but um that was my interest yeah well yeah. alexis wants me to play one more brief message from her it's <laughs> okay. not a, it's not a question but something where i think she'll be speaking for many people and again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for all of your writing. Thank you for your being. Thank you for your insistence on living your purpose in multiple forms. I can never thank you enough. I'm so grateful for who you are. That is so nice. <laughs> you know, she reminded me um, of... Um, Alexis asked me about you know when I when I met Audra Lord and um, what uh, what our exchanges were and so on and I I recall once um, I recalled for her once meeting up with Audra Lord and I think it was in Montreal I think it was in Montreal right and we were all to go to uh, dinner together and I got lost. <laughs> And I couldn't find where dinner was. <laughs> and so I missed having dinner with Audre Lorde and a whole oh, no. bunch of other people. Um, and that reminded me of when I missed meeting Mandela. <laughs> Nelson oh, wow. Mandela. Yeah. Right. I go to a lovely conference called the New Nation Writers Conference in Johannesburg just after apartheid ends. And the conference is organized by Willy Hotsutsili who recently died, poet, lovely, wonderful man. And I get, it's my first trip to the continent. And I, I, I get on the plane and I'm coming down the continent, you know, and I, I get to Johannesburg and I think the occasion is at seven o'clock. And it reminds me the the dinner with Audre Lorde was supposed to be around seven o'clock too. And I wander the streets of Montreal looking for this place. But what happens to me in Johannesburg is that I think I'll just have a nap and get up. The next time I wake up, it's the next day. And I have missed <laughs> meeting Nelson Mandela at the opening of the conference. And the conference people say that they have knocked on my door, they have called me, oh, but no. I have fallen asleep entirely, so <laughs> deeply, right? So these are these two people. <laughs> Who, who, you know, I've missed on very important occasions. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I... so I was wondering about what is that? What is that? What is that with me? That I, <laughs> why? Why? Right. That's terrible luck. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about, um, you were a, a participant in the Sojourners Project's catastrophe cartography panel that was hosted by Sidia Hartman, where every panelist engaged with living in the catastrophe or its aftermaths. And as Hartman put it, engaging with how to take care of, of ruined lives. Um, in that panel, you say that you have two works that engage with the catastrophe, the transatlantic slave trade, a map to the door of no return and ossuaries, that they sit on a continuum in this regard. In one of the few places online where, where we can hear you read from your latest poem, the latest poem that's um, in your, your collected, new and collected, Nomenclature for the Time Being, 
the 2020 Jackson lecture, Ronaldo Walcott says, after listening to you read it, he says that in some ways it reminds him of ossuaries. And you say that it's not incorrect to think of ossuaries with your new poem, that the figures in both are related. So I was hoping maybe you could introduce us to the new poem, Nomenclature in its own right, but also how you would place it in relation to a map to the door and ossuaries on this catastrophic spectrum and how the figures in, in nomenclature and ossuaries are, are connected to each other. Mm. The figure in ossuaries, the one that alternates with the kind of life of Yasmin, is a figure who exists after this is all done. Right? After, after the racial catastrophe and after the climate catastrophe, which are related. And, um, and looking back on the, on the earth or on the planet, but existing in a, in a strange way in the same time as that, in, in, the, in the ways that a, a whorl uh, works of all things existing in the same time. And this figure, existing on perhaps the outer rim of that whorl uh, and we on the inner. And that figure kind of, you know, sending messages or trying to send a message to we in the middle, looking in a sense at life in the middle as a kind of looking through a museum at a museum in the future and thinking through what the one that it was before what that person has come through in a way. But given the cyclical um, or whirling nature of it, if it is possible to change what is inside by knowing what is outside. So that figure says, you know, I, I lived and loved some might say in momentous times ravenous times, my dreams were full of prisons. So it, it is sending an, uh, a note, if you will, um, back to someone still waiting to hear um, of what has happened, right? But it lives beyond it. And, it and, and that figure notices us as bones in a kind of ossuary, common bones, the common bones of us. The narrator in nomenclature for the time being is, I suppose, related to that figure who finds us in this catastrophe, whether the present one, <laughs> um, and thinks again, I suppose, of, of a kind of record keeping of the truth of our emotions, the truth of our actions, right? So that figure is as cold-eyed, I suppose, as the one in Osiris. At one point, that figure says something like, I am hating living this. I am loving this. I'm turning into the someone necessary to live this. So it is like someone understanding that we are in this vicious period and admitting 
that I am actually becoming as vicious as the period, because that is how I survive the period, by becoming as vicious as the period, right? As uncaring. Um, and I think that's, we daily go out every day and do that. And I wanted to, that figure wants to make that plain, that we ought not anymore to fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we are good people. We aren't. We go out every day and we do this, yeah. right? So if you begin with this understanding, what do you do then? Mm. You know, so that's the that's the figure I'm interested in now. We know all these ways. And also the poem, and Osiris too, is not interested in um, sentimentality or sentimentalizing anything as poems are required to. And I think perhaps that begins in inventory. Mm. Not that I think I was ever that kind of, <laughs> kind of sentimental poet, but, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but it is completely irrevocably un unsentimental <laughs> yes. about what is being experienced mm. and about what is being said, right? So you will notice in, in nomenclature for the time being, the, the language of chemistry is used um, or the language of advertising is used because I think we live those languages and we hear them. We hear the word propylene, right? We hear, we hear those things. And, but somehow we're required, somehow poets are somehow required not to, not to hear those words or to think those words outside of our vocabulary but in fact, we are living the word, you know? We are living oil all the time, right? For me today, oil is like slavery, right? The slave trade worked the, the last five centuries or whatever, and oil worked this next one or two that, that we've just lived, right? Um, and the destruction of the planet, the kind of consuming of the planet, the in inside of itself, the burning of the planet. And so we must use this language because we are living this language and we would be delusional or we are being delusional not to not to use this language to um to admit uh you know who we are, right? To to return to this the story of the catastrophe across time and also the story of you as a poet in relationship to it. Christina and her critical introduction, among other things, walks us chronologically through your works and how they and you have shifted. Um, and when I think of the spectrum you set up with a map to the door, ossuaries, and now nomenclature, I wondered about another set of correspondences across time. Already in 1984, with Chronicles of the Hostile Sun, you have these lines, which I love. Uh, someone at a party drew me aside to tell me a lie about my poems. They said, you write well, your use of language is remarkable. Well, if that was true, hell would break loose by now. Colonies and fascist states would fall. Housework would be banned. Pregnant women would walk naked in the streets. Men would stay home at night, cowering. Whoever it was, this trickster, I wish they'd keep their damn lies to themselves. So, so already here we have this question of the effect of your art in the world. 
Um, but as we enter the 90s, after a cascade of defeats on the left in Africa, not to mention Grenada and Nicaragua, Christina says of this time, this is a poet who is working through, in language, how to speak toward liberation in the absence of a political movement. This poet is working out, in language, what has survived the death of her politics. And you say this very thing in your 97 collection, Land to Light On, with the lines, the body bleeds only water and fear when you survive the death of your politics, which I think also echoes with the line you just brought up around nomenclature, uh, around what sort of person do you have to be to continue living in the circumstances that we're in. It feels like a juncture in your career, your your confrontation with these questions that Christina suggests here um, happened at this time in the 90s. And I guess I wondered when I read the lines of Walter Benjamin in your latest poem that go, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the quote-unquote emergency situation in which we live is the rule. Then it will become clear that the task before us is the introduction of a real state of emergency, and our position in the struggle against fascism will thereby improve. You follow these words of his with yours. I am depending on the Benjamin paragraph as to explain where I am now. I have understood its uncanniness all my life, but to complete this task would have meant some difficult decisions on my part, not the least of which was to live the statement out. And this is my long way of asking if this new poem finds you at another juncture or or impasse similar to the one Christina's describing um, of looking for language when something has closed or been closed off. It feels more dire to me. I think of another line from the new poem. And when we arrayed all our intelligence against them, nothing happened. Yeah. Yes. I, I am trying to find another way of coming at the problem. And the problem, of course, is living, right? Um, I think I've always thought of my poems as actions, you know, not as salve or comfort, um, but as action, right? And that may have been naive in the beginning, <laughs> you know, when you're 20 and you're writing poems and you think, I write this poem and something will happen. But it's continued this insistence that if I write this poem, something will happen. Mm. You know, some something will change in the air. It will give language to to a life, right? Or at its best, something deeply radical will happen. And so following on that, then something always radical has to happen in the language itself for me. If I could be said to have a hope, it would be <laughs> it would be that um, as in as in Derek Walcott's uh, line in a poem, and I can't remember which now, and and I'm probably paraphrasing and not actually saying the line something like, "After this sentence, rain will fall." Mm. 
giving a sense that a poem is an action which propels or generates an action. So, so a poem is an action in the world. Uh, a line is an action in the world. And so the world will uh, be different the moment I say this. I love that. So I, I'm, I'm always moving with that intention um, in a way. And if I, and so I'm always trying to find the language or the poem that will generate that. Right? That will itself be a, a, a generator, if you will, because it itself is an action in the world. And it will change the next moment in air, in time, in space, and so on, right? So if anything can be said to be my, my raison, <laughs> my raison d'être, it would be that. Mm. Uh, it would be my, if, if I have a belief, <laughs> it is that a poem is an action, is an act itself, and that it, it makes other things happen. The world changes when you write it. So I'm writing it always with that intention. Um, and so nomenclature for the time being, if you notice, for the time being. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hedging my bets on it. Um, and it's a kind of naming or a kind of, you know, uh, a practice for now. Mm. Now, for now, for the time being, suggests some other time might happen. And, and it also suggests, for now, this is what I can say. For now, this is what I can say about now. Um, we, will, we will see. Well, well, let's hear a little bit of the new poem, Nomenclature for the Time Being. Nomenclature for the Time Being, 2022. The apocalyptic reports have come true dilute in our arterial solvent. The atrocities saturate our latent notebooks. We stay awake, lambent. There are iridium rectangles under our tables. We meet, languid, nauseous, transfused presently for a few decades, chronic, venous, insufficient. The intervals of talk speed to nothing, and we've become scientists of without, under force, out of water, across loading, with bearings of us. Nothing will come from our innocence, you know that, after all. No discoveries in old texts, no modern symmetries, no revelations, no wisdoms to be admired. Messages to be deciphered, smuggled to each generation, or so prescient, they require philosophers. These were not clandestine works. There are no secret hallways waiting for the transcriber of great portents. It's simple. The wars they recorded were the wars they won. Let me be plain with you. These portraitures are portraitures. of what we suspect. The insoluble facts are these then. 
No one carried their writings across a river, in a ringed cloth on the head, or sewn into the precious fold of a hem. No one buried them in a desert to wait for a coruscating time. The illuminated manuscripts are just the gaudy sacredness of violence. The electronic leeches downloaded their data bulk. I for one understood this eventually. My tendons were xenolith, by then, of course, the tectonic plates zigzagging, shivering against us. There was that time, in a room on Calle Nueva, when the world crushed my chest like the world, like a boulder, as if the world were a boulder, as if gravity knitted sternum to finger, to hill, to lip, to thread, to floor, to chair, to boat, to gull, to Calle Nueva Alta, to thought, to hem, to a bus, to three note pencils, to umbrella, to foot, to insect, to jaw, to stem, to emate lagoon, nebula, to deneb, to fish, to velocity, to sheet, to wing, to light socket, to metal rail, to postage, as if gravity melted oxygen tank, to grief, to hip, to shoreline, to chair, to drinking glass, to green light, to ziphoid, to November, to tailpipe, to insect, to transcriptome. I know everything. I'm not innocent. It was 5 p.m. all day that day. The sky. If I say the sky's small arithmetic, its inscription, its echo, through one undone instance and the other, we discovered new diseases traveling the floor of our tissue. We leathered these in catalogues of our antigens, what with one thing and another. I am only ever uttering every other word skirting all articulations shaped by ideology. Wary of this, understand, it has been several winters to the next. We lost absorption. We broke this down into subtle molecules. We needed iodine, polyphenols, anatoseeds, the analytics of arriving, and the whole dictionary of the knowledges of seabirds not to succumb. The storekeepers, set up as our guardians and our friends and our comrades, they smiled with us one day. They took whiskey with our enemies too. We read their books, as I said earlier, took in their alphabets like popsicles and lesion paste. It is a good thing that they don't know who we are. To begin with, there are dingy pictures of picturelessness. We saw nothing. Nothing evaporated. The year was endless. The occipital lobe driven, maximizing propylene yields. How? The cyclical literatures made our arteries theoretical. Which is to say, I myself, I'm sick. Sick today. Sick always in the tetravalence in any specific quadrant or the orbits elemental and inorganic seeming. A stellar career I have made of waiting, carbon, seeing, 
what they saw on the periphery, they now see in matter and resurrect and replicate the dayless days. The beautiful innocence of those who live at the center of empire, their wonderful smiles, their sweet delight and, and their singular creation of the word hope, when I am actually dying. But now we enjoy them, their sweetness, their love of us. We envy their cuisine, their insouciance. No, truly, I am not being facetious. I am honest in my lovely amazement. It is like candy marbling in the mouth. It is an overview of the temporal lobe, misfiring unrecognizably. The scrim of their philosophies. When they say humanity, everyone. We, these are not lies. We, we misapprehend the function of language and speech. How can I assure anyone there is no rancor? Trust me on this. With a world's gaze focused on reducing emissions, apply now. Renewable hydrogen alliance, let us return. We never learned to be quiet. Something coming, though, we could never get a hold of it. We've taken down the bookshelf, and we'll depend on any hour. And our razor-bladed veins, our cardboard signs saying, do not look at me. We have our precious luggage in our hands all day long. Our feet are against the ocean crust, palmate with every intention to listen like moths and leaves. We freeze in summers on the mere thought of winter appearing. What is it to talk as if the world you know is the world? I admire that focus on these grubby economies, these narrow, precipitous doorways selling everything like hardware. With all my good, good life in a mirror, years have passed. Great day, good brief morning. Again, all they've made of it is money and something named sex, made out of a kind of self-hatred of their testicles. All they've made of it is the law of testicles made of their hatred. How jealous. When I was happy, and when I was lonely, all they did was laugh. All I did was laugh, destitute. All I did was stand up straight, stand fucking straight, they said. Then I ate the antidote for living. I had the throat of living. All I did was living. Thirty-one thousand reasonable weeks, they said. I foraged living out of the garbage then. Living glistened on me, bioluminescent like algae. To atomize, they used copper lead, aluminum, iron and tin, cadmium and nickel for deaths again and again. So, we were circuited by death, abbreviated. Look how we hung heavy in our funereal clothing. Lead antimony alloy encased in soft brass jackets. How we walked before the cameras, disguised in our tears, as if we were that cruel to ourselves and wore hardened steel just to please them. They shoved microphones into our bawling mouths, and grief looked like archaeology. 
We've been listening to Dion Brand read from Nomenclature New and Collected Poems. So in the film you made with Adrian Rich, Rich brings up a quote by Virginia Woolf that goes, As a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I want no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. And Rich pushes back against this quote, particularly it coming from a British white woman, or I'm guessing for that matter if it had come from a Canadian or American white woman, where she felt it was just too easy for such a woman to take flight and ignore all the ways they benefit at the expense of others from their citizenship in the nation where they actually live. You at the time seemed to put your allegiance more with Wolf, at least in the sense that you were wholeheartedly against the notion of nation. And then Rich brings up the Derek Walcott quote, no nation now but the imagination, and suggests it as a way forward, not of nation building, but of future building. But I wanted to stick with Rich's uneasiness around Wolf's quote as an entryway perhaps into the white innocence you are reviling in the new poem, perhaps in relationship to the line, what is it to talk as if the world you know is the world? Um, can, can you speak a little bit to innocence in relationship to nomenclature for the time being for us? Mm-hmm. I, I love that connection you make between that conversation and, and this. And yes, I understood Adrienne's questions to to that that idea because it it would be it would have been it was it is easy enough to slough off that nation um, when in fact you're so implicated in it constantly it's not sufficient to merely slough it off but to actually do something to break it we were one in in that sense and my response to her about completely negating nation, uh, and these were evidence of our positionings, in a sense, in in that whole, in the whole structure, and, and in that whole idea. And I still do believe, but but that is because I'm always outside nation, as a black person, as a woman. I'm always outside nation and I take note of it and I refuse it actually. I refuse to enter nation as a black person and as a woman. I refuse its um I refuse its call. Uh and, and I think white innocence is a feature of nation. It's it's the benefit of nation in a way, right? It is the way in which you are in nation without accounting for it. And and the way in which white people are in nation and give over the management of the idea of nation, of the apparatus of nation for the boon of being in it and for the boon of practicing a set of injustices, laissez-faire injustices in a way, right? Um, this innocence is encouraged entirely in in language such as, you know, working people, 
uh, everybody, we don't want this kind of thing. This, this kind of innocence is invoked and repeated constantly in phrases and languages like that. Um, hence my antipathy toward narrative, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. my, my really um, quite a troubled relation with it. And it is not that people are unaware of these practices at all, but that they agree <laughs> with these practices, but nation allows a certain obscurity of the practices, a certain obscureness, right, of the practices. And I talk a lot about it in nomenclature for the time being. And, and there's a, a stanza about reproducing whiteness. Uh, I think the stanzas go something like, I refuse to reproduce whiteness anymore. And that reproduction can take place in the simplest of exchanges, like, good morning, <laughs> you know, um, or how are you, right? This kind of reproduction of the, of the dailiness of whiteness, when in fact, each day I should actually be asking, you know, white people, what are you doing about this? <laughs> As opposed to good morning, <laughs> right? It would be better to ask. <laughs> it, it would be a better use of my time. <laughs> Instead, as I step out my door and meet my neighbor to say, what are you doing about this today? <laughs> as opposed to good morning. Good morning merely reproduces yeah. um, the daily, right? Yeah. Um, it reproduces white nation. It reproduces uh, that, that, that everydayness of it, right? And it, and it gives my neighbor the right to go to work and be happy without thinking, what are you doing about this today? What are you doing about the prisons? What are you doing about the, yeah. 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 What are you doing about inequality today? Yeah. So let's, let's stay with the word nomenclature and the title a little longer. You interrogate and you have here also words like innocence and hope and humanity saying about the latter. I'm not suggesting anything called human. That is a discredited theory. You also seem to be doing something with pronouns at the Jackson lecture two years ago. You said the eye of this poem is the eye of a black aesthetic and that the I or we of the poem is an accumulation of observations of black people moving with intention into their imaginations of their liberation. This is part of the mystery and magic of your poetry. I think, uh, this writing from and about the catastrophe without hope or humanity because it is also true what Saidia Hartman says in your catastrophe panel that when you crack open the chest, I think she's referring to your line from inventory that goes, there are atomic openings in my chest to hold the wounded. But she suggests, and I agree, that even though you crack open the chest and there's an opening, a wound, and an absence, that there's so much heart and something so life-giving in your work. And, and maybe it's a kindred phenomenon to what Ruth Gilmore Wilson suggests, that abolition is more than anything a presence, a tearing down, but also a remaking. Mm -hmm. but, but talk to us more about this I of a Black aesthetic uh, and this we of accumulated observation and how this might differ from a more normative use of I and we in the poem. Wow, that's a hard one. 
well you know it's a it's a it's a long one <laughs> it's a long one <laughs> i wanted to in in this poem take apart all taken for granted notions about such things as human what what that word means in general um how we are to take it where I say it's a discredited notion. It's completely discredited. It's it's used by people to sell shoes. I mean, I don't know what, what's the point, <laughs> right? Um, it's used by people on, on the one hand to sort of sell shoes and then, then it's used by, you know, perpetrators of the greatest violence to talk about their life, right? So we cannot know what that is. We It's, it's useless, this word now. Um, I am trying to collect along with so many other black thinkers. I'm trying to collect ourselves, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm trying to resist the methods of imprisonments. And I'm trying to resist the language of the ways in which, you know, black life is structured into an everyday. And I'm trying to think about how I, we live outside of that everyday, of, outside of that structured everyday, how we run back to our homes uh, that are incredibly playful, incredibly improvisational. And that's most of my life. That's the life I live mentally. And there is this other life, this life of imprisonments that try to take over that life that I'm trying to live. The life that I'm trying to live is not the life structured by capital. It's not the life structured by, you know, liberal democratic states or dictatorial states. The life that I'm trying to live is this wonderful improvisational, um, you know, uh, playful, creative life, right? And there are a set of roadblocks or a set of obstacles along the way that might trap me into that other life, right? The former life. Um, and those might trap me with words like hope and humanity and human, etc., in ways that those words have been co-opted beyond the point of us even describing them as co-optation. They just are now. So it is this life that I'm trying to gather in language, uh, in meaning, and, and with all haste. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, a, I have another, uh, a final question from someone outside the interview. Um, okay. In the spirit of the blue clerk, which sits outside your collected, but also 
informs everything within it. Kinesia Lubrin has a question for you that comes from the Blue Clerk. Hi, Dion. Kinesia here. So where to begin? I, I suppose to say a completely insufficient thank you for the distinction of your books and the gift of moving through this life uh, with the shape that those books put on the senses, you know, among their many gifts, um, are the ways that they help us see clearer, hear better, and to feel more fully in ourselves, in our bodies, in the world. So thank you. Now, D David asked me to send you a question, and my usual impulse before your writing <laughs> is nearly always that I have no questions because, because of how much your thinking and art have stretched thought itself, you know, and my own sense of, of possibility. Uh, but here I want to ask about the women. In The Blue Clerk, it strikes me deeply when the author says to the clerk, no one has asked me about the women. And here I would like to ask about the women and what urged you to write that sentence. No one has ever asked me about the women. Hmm. <laughs> the Blue Clerk was a very difficult book to write, you know, because <laughs> David, the Blue Clerk is not me. <laughs> In fact, the Blue Clerk is not even the I that I usually work with who is not me. <laughs> I love that. Blue Clerk is far removed. You know, there's a, oh gosh, I wish I could remember. There's a Latin um, phrase that you write down, procuratum, I think is something, I can't remember it, that if you are writing a note for me, in my stead, that is, you would write it and you would say, per procuratum, I think it is. Like I'm writing it for the clerk, right? So every time I have to refer to the clerk, I have to write it as if I am writing for her, I am not her. I have to declare that I am not she. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I am more the author than the clerk in a way, right? Yes. Um, no one has asked me about the women. God knows what she was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can leave it there. I hope Kinesia finds this funny, but no, I <laughs> have will. to go look. I have to go. <laughs> uh. I think, I think, you know, the, that she was talking about, you know, how I'm in the, Third person. Um, I think that she was talking about that whole big life that no one asks about, that no one knows about. It's not a life that might enter the world with, uh, that enters this world we live in with legitimacy. It is so full of its own loves and violences and and ways of thinking that it it has yet to be expressed, mm. and and uh, you know, 
but I, I can't, yeah. <laughs> can't speak for the clerk. <laughs> but I have to tell you how difficult it was to write that book because it was a book that required an inordinate amount of honesty, <laughs> which would kill the author, really, which would, um, because of course, all of the stuff that the clerk collects it is what the author cannot hold. And so the book was also going to be endless. But to end the book was a betrayal of the clerk. Mm -hmm. So there's a betrayal, in the, in, in, you know. That book is volumes more than what the author's efficiencies produced in a way, you know. And it's still a project that um, troubles me. Mm. Uh, um, as much as it is also a kind of playful project, but it is a project that required the kind of commitment that I, I failed at <laughs> by ending it. I, I wanted to spend the rest of our time talking about time, which might also return us to the beginning about poetry versus narrative. At least I think of narrative as more connected to the unfolding of time and poetry is uh, more about an all at onceness or the, the possibility of an all at onceness. Um, mm -hmm. But I recently attended an, an event with Solmaz Sharif and Claire Schwartz where Solmaz asks a long question with many questions embedded within it and realizing this, she says at the end, maybe you can make something from this word soup. So in that spirit, I'm going to make a word soup from various things I've noticed in your work about time and see what it sparks uh, for you. So thinking back to Coltrane and how you describe his song Venus as at some point in the song itself rejecting its former self, where you said in one talk, the job of black artists is to blow out of the time we live in where it might be understood in the future, to play where we ought to be living, which made me think of your rejection of origins in A Map to the Door, where you say, too much is made of origins, and if I reject this notion of origin, I have also to reject its mirror, which is the sense of origins used by the powerless to contest power in a society that somehow Coltrane playing both from a future present and playing in the present now, but in a legible way for the future, feels related to this. Um, in, in Blue Clerk, you say, poetry has an obligation to the present that poetry is time. But I also notice, similar to the way Coltrane is playing for the future and from the future, what seems like a bimodal aspect to time in your work, perhaps related to what Christina Sharp means when she says, Brand's work is cognizant that black people have to be simultaneously ahead of time and outside of it. It makes me think again of your second novel with the family tree, how it feels like it's engaging with perhaps something we might call revolutionary time beyond time, but also an intermediate maroon time, a, a different time carved out within the present. 
And we see this with how you situate Miles Davis and Bird, one who kept living and one who flew away. And I wonder if this is related to the lines in Ossuary's, if I have lived, I have not loved. And if I have loved, I cannot have lived. If perhaps loving and living are two forms of time, one beyond and one within. Or, or how you describe ossuaries as written from a future present, but also it being simultaneously the artifact and the archaeologist who's studying the artifact, two times occurring at once. So we have the fugitive voice from the now risking their life for the future, but then we have another voice from the future looking back at the now. So I wondered if this mashup of thoughts on time provokes anything in you about time in, in your work? It describes it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see yourself in what I, what I said. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm flying with you. <laughs> Back and forth. All right. Um, yeah, you know, I listened to that piece, Venus by Coltrane, and so many other pieces of jazz that one can listen to and feel the sense of the artist pinioned to the time that they are living in, especially when that time contained, you know, shadow slavery and just oppression and blowing their full selves into some other space away. Because sometimes you can listen to that music and you can think, what year is this? If you compare it to the, the sludge-like <laughs> movement of the present or the sludge-like movement of, you know, post-industrial, even, even in terms of so-called technological society, which supposedly moves us so much faster, but actually doesn't. Um, so, and sometimes you listen to a piece of music like that and you think, wow, uh, you, you think of the set of statements that it is making, you know, um, statements that like are not, um, quartered by what we know, but, but by what we might know. You know, and if you think of what we might know, what we might know is so much larger than what we do. And so it's in that field, you know, mm -hmm. that I think poetry plays. And I think there are all kinds of artistic practices that play in that, in that field. Um, so that's what I was thinking with, with that piece and, and what it indicates and that it's having a conversation that cannot possibly be had at the level of that um, slow moving, that slow moving modern, that, yeah? yeah. And, and so that's the thing that appeals to me about, about that piece, but about so much, so much else that's produced by, by artists. And I also, I also think in that way of even time past in that way, that there are fissures in time past that don't attend to or that occur in the 
I was about to make a double double up this metaphor, which is not right. There are fissures. <laughs> there are fissures which can be apprehended where a more complicated life is lived. Right? And I think in that regard, I'm faced every day with the spectacularity of Black life from all media, right? And so therefore I'm faced every day with the question of breaking down that spectacularity or um, rejecting that spectacularity for what I know, which are the complex, deep arrangements of the everyday. And that spectacularity isn't merely spectacular, it is doing a work, right? It is doing a work of undermining the, the me and the you and the we. It constantly undermines that and it repeats it constantly, yeah? And so my work as a poet and as a writer is to undermine that spectacularity, if you will, constantly. So it's an every it's an every minute attempt to undermine that spectacularity. And yes, yeah, so therefore it's a kind of work to inhabit time. <laughs> right? You know? Well let me try to make a connection that may or may not be the right connection, but I'm curious what you think of it. So in in my last conversation for the show was with Elaine Castillo about a book called How to Read Now. And I talk a lot about your book about reading in that conversation, an autobiography of the autobiography of reading, where you walk us through different possible strategies of engaging with texts, particularly ones that exclude the reader in some Mm -hmm. way or flatten the reader or other the reader. Um, You try giving names to unnamed characters. For instance, the Arab in in Camus' The Stranger. Uh, You explore various types of counter-narratives to the canon. You look at why Sargasso Sea and and the ways it successfully and unsuccessfully uh, is a counter-narrative. You look at John Keane, who more successfully um, creates a counter-narrative. But you ultimately conclude that one could consider writing not in engagement with what is there, but essentially ignoring it and its pathologies and writing from what you call a sovereign point of view. And, and I wondered if being simultaneously ahead of time and outside of it has to do in some way with the sovereign point of view, because one of the things that comes up in multiple places in your work is a flat out rejection of looking at one's life from the perspective, well, it could have been worse. You reject the idea of, of, coming from a place of gratitude that one's life isn't worse than it is um, from a place of accommodation to a a world that's untenable, Uh, but rather it feels like you're insisting upon a sovereignty outside of it, perhaps like this Coltrane song that is blowing a, a new space. But I didn't know if this book, which is about narrative, not about poetry, if that is a, if there's something connected there between this outside and ahead of time and this, um, this other way of reading, Mm. but which is also another way of writing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You said a lot of things there. I mean, I think this, an autobiography of the, the autobiography of, of reading. And in those two articles, Anne and the, and where they're placed that, 
that the an, an autobiography, the one who is writing an autobiography is the one who occupies the larger space. And the autobiography being described the, in the definite article, the autobiography, is how a certain kind of subject is made in the world through narrative, right? So that how my training in neo-colonial schools uh, of, of kind of British, um, Brit of the British Empire, <laughs> if you will, um, trained me to read, trained me to read, but then also trained me to be in that reading, right? Who was I in those texts? Um, what kinds of leaps did I have to make to enter those texts, to associate with those texts? Um, and the long years of disassociation, <laughs> which might lead to the and, to the apprehension of those texts, of those texts as a kind of um, subject making. Um, and then to notice how the texts work, like how they make the subject. And then to, um, to notice oneself, noticing the making of oneself is an interesting thing to me and something that I'm about to blow up into a larger project actually to read all those texts, all those subject making texts in a way um, that become commonsensical, commonplace, that become one's very way of acting in the world or of reading the world, right? And of reading oneself into the world. And also to notice the work that they do and that they continue to do. So if they continue to do a work, it means they are still under stress and pressure <laughs> to keep doing the work, right? So that text that creates that subject, that reading and that reading subject is a text always enacting, always enacting, right? So I can think of, a, of ways in which contemporary writers or writers over the last hundred and something years, despite the fact that we are, we are 100 and something years away from uh, slavery and colonial texts and so on, and all the literatures produced in that period, there are texts today that follow the pattern of character and uh, place and where those texts situate certain kinds of characters that are now commonsensical, but they nevertheless owe so much to that period of literature making, which told us what a character was, where a character was to be situated, and which other characters have to be arrayed around them in order for them to come into being. So in order for that European subject to come into being, these other characters have to be arranged in a particular way around them, right? Particular ways that have to do with class, that have to do with race, that have to do with gender, et cetera. And it, it is fascinating to me, the repetition of those structures, right? Even when you're not trying to do that, but, but, it, but they're being repeated. So, um, so time works always, 
right? In, in fact, you know, so we could look at kind of colonial time and its extensions right through to us. So what is it for a writer now to write? If one must write now, one must notice the practices of time, like the practices of those narratives constructed around time, what time was for. It's just, um, it's, an, it's a, an immense work <laughs> to unravel and undo. And some people, un some people, when you unravel it, they get pissed with you, but there it is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right? That guy in, in your novel, you know, looking for success, and that guy's a 19th century guy. It's a 19th century white guy. Yeah. You know? So who are you? <laughs> right? And what are you doing? And I ask myself the same question. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Um, so... And I think a writer must always undo that. So in, in that sense, you, you undo time or what has come to be called time. Have I answered you? I've just answered you partially. All of this is so partial. You know what I mean? It's so, yeah. I think it can only be. Yeah, yeah. But may, you might have already answered or partially answered my last question, which come from lines in nomenclature. Um, and the lines are, this does not need a remedy. This does not need a balm. This needs an ending. And also the lines, I do not believe in time. I do believe in water. Water doesn't end. Something about that makes me think of your description of reading Saidiya Hartman, making you think of the reclamation of the continuous. Um, but what does it mean to not believe in time, but but in water instead, or or can you speak into that a little bit for us? Well, I suppose what I'm thinking through there, and you know, as we've said, all my answers, especially about my poetry, can only be partial because in the time that you create the poem or you create the line, you are in such big time, <laughs> you're in such like a a, a wide uh, space um, where so much is collected, and you are trying to hold it in in some ways in in a, in a in in a smaller space as a as a line i think that i meant the the ways in which time is so under the command of various structures right i i walk out my door today but i can be held at any moment by forces against me in fact i am held every moment by forces against me that I cannot say that I can control time in that sense. Like I can't control my, my step in a way. And the line, I do believe in water. I was reading the other day that someone said that we say we live on planet earth, but we actually live on planet water because most of the earth is water. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's, I'm struck by that. Me too. Right. That has, an inevitability about it <laughs> that is big, yeah? yeah, and um, and so yes, that you know, mm -hmm. that I do believe in that. But what was the previous thing you said? The first piece you quoted. This does not need a remedy. This does not need a bomb. This needs an ending. It needs an ending. But also right. that water doesn't end. Yeah. At the yeah, same time, it right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It does not, does not need a bomb. 
it needs an ending. There was a, an interesting moment there during this ongoing pandemic where everything stopped. And there was in that everything stopping despite the great disaster that it was, there was a moment for stopping. One, virtually we all had to stop. But of course the machinery drove some people anyway, because there were people who had to go to work to care for us, right? But there was an, an opening there for rethinking. It was, a, it was slippery, but it was present about, why don't we all just stop this? And what the this is, is the overproduction of everything, right? The overproduction of everything. Um, and the committing of everything to that overproduction, even our thoughts. And we saw how much of us, even our physical beings were committed to that overproduction. And we were pissed too, because we couldn't go outside to do it, <laughs> to hand ourselves over to the machine <laughs> either, right? And there was a moment of rethinking and there was a moment of challenge for many states for many nation states, if you will, to do something different, to do something else. And if you notice, the politicians were very upset. They didn't know what the, right? Suddenly they just had to take care of us because we were ill. And they were pissed at that too, mm -hmm. you know? And they, you know, some of them, the most sort of fascist of them said things like, you know, well, people need to work and well, not maybe no, actually, <laughs> you know, um, they were very upset at our inadvertent reclamation of time and what to do with it. And some of us, even those of us who think deeply about it, thought, oh, damn, what am I going to do with my time now? Not, you notice the vacuum in the brain because it isn't committed to this machine anymore, right? So I just wanted to think in a in a in a large way about what that what that moment meant. But then very quickly the whole system kind of revved back up, figured out how to monetize our health <laughs> again and is proceeding now. Yeah. Right. But I think proceeding perhaps to another kind of, you know, great traumatic event. Because the thing we should have stopped doing, we didn't stop doing, which is the overproduction of everything on the planet, the overuse of everything on, on the finite space that we live on. So we will see. Well, let's, let's finish with some more from your latest poem, Nomenclature, Nomenclature for the Time Being. I notice the famished globe, I do. The dead theory of humanity in Spanish and in Italian. The Anglo-American prison of thought in a bookshop. On Calle Porvenir in Cartagena. I have seen the translations and the instructional manual on the economics of morphology and phonology. The worst things they said about me, they said every time, and I don't mourn this. I read their bulletins, 
I am measuring their temperature. I am making my diagnosis of their sentences and their ailment. I take it by their syntax. They are not alive. The bandages I undid from these wounds. The sulfur thiazole we kept in the glass cabinet. The poultices and salves. The ocular washes. The saline lacrimal solutions I dispensed. They've all run out. This does not seek a remedy. This does not need a balm. This needs an ending. I'm not suggesting anything called human. That is a discredited theory. Their most gentle imagining is bitter with expertise. They were allowed to walk around in newspapers and have children and announcements of children and their good life. They had the temerity to sell me movies and portfolios and terabytes of their lousy activities. And I bought them, and it punished me to hear their awful news of their victories over me that made me laugh and love them as they insisted. And there was stupid me in my fluffy slippers thinking I was a lover in the world. My address was 1791 Tulip Lane, Bois Cayman. I had a motorcycle and a car. The light bills were no worry. I am not suggesting. But I could drink wine in the mornings if I wanted. A tattoo with a whale in Montreal. And believe me, I love concrete. And believe me, I love rubber. But now that I am leaving, I will not miss their acidity. Good luck to you. I've left, homeless. There's a mauve cloud on its own along Boule Saint-Laurent, relentless. Surveillance in the underpass, until the yellow exit where a pretty baby appears in a carriage. The usual cops are in the usual place, on a cellular tower at Saint-Antoine. But the wedding on the beach, what in this nothing morning should we say? All the bicycles all the runners, all the furious production, the steaming snows, the containers vers IT voie de droite, let us go east, the lined and last of the Inca in Cusco, putting out her hand for cash, pragmatic with disgust. That dress, so fatal you cannot meet the world any other way now, when could you meet the world? in any other way, the deep sleep of capital, the unbroken field, the crickets perhaps, the only sovereign things, even the birds have altered their flight and song, the medicos will give oxygen and loneliness for the microscopic adhesives in the lungs, the fecal planes, the drooling sky, not true, the sky is the sky, always the sky, wondrous the sky under which the acid oceans. What is it to lament this? I am not really lamenting. I am hating this. I am loving this. I am turning into the something necessary to live this. I'm wearing cardboard, declaring, do not look at me. My life is on the frequency of sirens, is on the risen contusions on the vendors, is on the parallel, is shift work, 
is on the lethal faces of the buyers, is the strangest, noisiest night in the rawest market. Here I notice resinous, the ones who keep people sleeping with their art, somnolent and private, gestural and fatal, do not distort the violence with any water, any love, any laughter, any ink, do not. It was 5 p.m. all day today, the sky. There isn't the psychiatry yet to take me out of my madness. When I played tennis with such sadness, when I drank wine with such sadness, when I watched the sea with such sadness, when I drove to the lake with such sadness, no branch of medicine still diagnosed my sadness, with tests returning sadness. When aconite bloomed with such sadness, when pages read with this sadness, when sleep resigned its intervals to sadness. And all the things that happened with such sadness, these were the best days. And my friends held me with such holding, and they ate with me holding, and they laughed with me holding. We were in San Jose holding, and my chest was empty holding. We were in Santiago at the Plaza de Armas holding, and my arms with such sadness we were in Phnom Penh at the Russian market holding, 55 stories in glass buildings with such sadness, and I still, with my rough eyes, such holding. It was a real honor and pleasure to spend all this time together, Dion. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've listened to you, of course, for like, you know, years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I really enjoy your conversations and I enjoy your your reading of the work. And I thank you for that reading, uh, for those readings. And because you don't get a chance often to talk well um, about one's work because these same efficiencies, <laughs> these same economies of literature, you know, have gravitated toward the same economies that we live in so it's difficult to speak in a deep and detailed way and about work so i thank you for your reading yeah we've been talking today to dion brand about her latest collection nomenclature new and collected poems you've been listening to between the covers i'm david Naiman, your host Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Dion Brand contributes readings from two forthcoming books in 2023, Kinesia Lubrin's Code Noir and Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes. This joins bonus material from everyone from John Keane to N.K. Jemison. Laylee Long Soldier to Ada Limon. The bonus audio is only one of many potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers. Join our brainstorm of future guests. 
receive the supplementary resources with each conversation and choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, from out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, to a personalized, handmade Korean wrapping cloth from Mary Kim Arnold, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. Or maybe you just simply find these conversations substantive, meaningful, even life-affirming. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.